Let's pray. God, we need you in order to hear and understand your word. We thank you, Father, for your presence with us this morning by the Holy Spirit. And we now are in a posture, each one of us, ready, Lord, to hear you speak. Your servants are listening. Amen. There was a story that I read hmm, a long time ago about a life-saving society that was formed over 300 years ago by a group of people who lived on, an, on Nantucket Island. And this is an island just south of Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Now in those days, you know, 300 years ago, this story is told, and in those days, sea travel was treacherous and dangerous at the very least, um, given the storms of the Atlantic and the rocky coasts of Massachusetts. Because of that, many, many ships went down and many lives were lost. And, you know, in those days, when the sea travel was so dangerous, there was this group of people on the island and they couldn't stand to think about all these people who were going down so close to them. So they went into the life-saving business. They built little huts that dotted the shoreline where they had boats and rescue equipment um, in those huts. And sometimes they were called huts of refuge. Now, members of the group were posted in those little huts all the time. And all that their job was, they had a single narrow focus, was just to watch the sea. To look out. And any time a ship went down, the word went out. They'd risk themselves they, to save every life they could. And 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, these huts were staffed with the people who were watching searching, scanning the sea for someone who needed to be rescued. And you know, they didn't get paid. They didn't do it for the recognition. They did it because they prized human life. That was their outlook. People mattered. And just to remind them just how seriously they took this mission and they took this task, they adopted a great motto. And this motto was, you have to go out but you don't have to come back. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. You wouldn't think that this particular motto would entice anyone to join them. <laughs> but it did. It did. It did. It was their outlook, their belief that people mattered that had them look out and then they went out and I I think I'm sure that people thought that they were out of their minds but in this passage today Paul points out that people also thought that the early Christians were out of their minds and when it came to preaching the gospel they thought they may even be crazy I just want to take a look at verses 13 through 15 again of this passage. Paul writes, if we are out of our mind, and another translation says, if it seems we're crazy, as some say, it is for God. And if we are in our right mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. And in other 
translations it says Christ's love controls us it grips us it urges us on because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again Jesus love was what compelled them to share the good news. They themselves had experienced this love and forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. That he died for them, he rescued them, and he defeated death when he rose again. That was their motivation for preaching the gospel. It was Christ's love for them. And I love what Michael Green writes about the motivation for evangelism in the early church. He says, they didn't spread, spread their message because it was advisable for them to do, nor because it was the socially responsible thing to do. They did it because of the overwhelming experience of the love of God which they had received through Jesus Christ. Christ's love, his love for them, gripped them. I love that image. Gripped, compelled them. But here's the key. They knew that it was not just Christ's love for them. In that passage we read, it's Christ's love for all. For all. Paul is saying, this should inform how we live as people who have truly experienced the love and forgiveness of Christ. He says, we should no longer live for ourselves, but for Jesus, who died and was raised again. We love him, and we want to live for him. Christ's love compels us. And then he goes on to tell us, you know, now we need to change our outlook. Now we need to change our perspective when we look at people. He says we're no longer to look at anyone from a worldly point of view. And so I ask myself, you know, how do you and I look at others? What does that mean if we're looking at people from a worldly point of view? You know, I think if we're looking at people from a worldly point of view, we see them as people who are here for a time and then gone. We see that. Um, they're either an inconvenience to us or they're a way for us to get ahead. Or maybe we, just, maybe we just don't see them at all. Maybe they're just invisible. But Paul is writing... You know, if we no longer see them from a worldly point of view, if we truly believe that they are of value to God and that God's purpose is that we partner with him to share his love for them, that indeed we believe that there is more to life than just this life, do we believe this? There's more to life than just this life. Then we'll look at people from that perspective. It will be an eternal perspective. I love this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were precisely those who thought most of the next. It is since Christians have largely ceased to think of the other world that they have become so ineffective in this. There's more to life than just this life. And if we believe what the Bible says, that entry into God's kingdom depends upon a personal relationship with Jesus, what does that mean for us? 
If we believe that's why Jesus came, why he lived and died and rose again, this is the whole point of it, this is why our churches exist, then we are compelled, we are to show and tell God's love to the world, tell them that there's a God who created them to love them. And that apart from faith in Christ, they cannot have a relationship with him. And you know, the early church believed this with a white hot passion. And the exclusivity of Christ being the only way was just as objectionable then as it is today. They believed that apart from faith in Christ, there was no hope for the world. And Jesus was the only hope, so they risked everything because of the love that they experienced themselves first. And then they were compelled to share it with others. The stakes were high then, and the stakes are high today, folks. It's life or death. Do we believe that? You know, I wonder if the motto for the early church could have been, you have to go out, but you don't have to come back. Like the early days of the life-saving society on Nantucket Island. You know, in those early days, the society was filled with passion for saving people who were being lost off the coast. They risked everything, even their own lives, to save people they've never met, who they never knew, who they've never seen before. But then the story goes, spoiler alert, over time, the U.S. Coast Guard started taking up the cause. And for a little while, the Coast Guard and the Life Saving Society, they worked together side by side. But soon, the attitude of, let the professionals do it, they're better trained, and after all, they get paid, crept in. And soon, those huts were abandoned, and the people stopped looking out. They stopped searching the coastline. They stopped sending out teams to rescue people. Yet, funny, they just couldn't bring themselves to disband. And the life-saving society exists today. They still meet. They give out awards. They have dinners. They enjoy each other's company. They even sponsor programs. Only... They're just not in the life-saving business anymore. They've lost the thrill of what it means to risk themselves, to save a life that could perish. They no longer speak those words to each other. You have to go out, but you don't have to come back. And I fear that that might be what is happening to many of our churches today. It grieves my heart. And as Ortberg warns, you know, it doesn't happen in a month or in a year, but over time, a church forgets that they're in the life-saving business. They still meet, they still enjoy each other's company, they still have services and programs and staff. They just aren't sending out teams anymore. They aren't scouring their neighborhoods, their cities, their schools, their offices for those who need Christ's love and grace, the good news of God's love for them. And you know, Paul is reminding us that we, the church, we are supposed to be in the life-saving business and we need to change our outlook. We need to look out. In verses 17 through 20, I just want to review those. Paul is saying, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old is gone, and the new is here. 
All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And as he has committed to us the message of reconciliation, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. Wouldn't it be amazing? <laughs> and what could God do if we had our churches become huts of refuge, like the early years of the life-saving society? And you know what were in those huts? Boats and rescue equipment and people who knew how to use them and knew what they were for. They weren't sitting on dry land where they were useless. Imagine what would happen if the hearts of God's people were moved in such a way that they just couldn't stand it. If one person in their community, one person in their city, one person in the world, let's go big, didn't have the opportunity to respond to the good news of what God has done for them through Christ. Just can't stand it. Picture this. Picture this with me. Instead of members leaving the evangelism to the professionals, the pastor, the staff, because they're better trained, and after all, isn't that what they get paid to do? Instead, wouldn't it just be awesome if we moved from that country club mentality that says, you know, I've paid my dues, so I want things my way, to being huts of refuge? Instead of thinking, if we just open the doors of our churches, there's a mysterious vacuum that just brings people in. Look at them come. And maybe in Newfoundland and Labrador, we think it's the wind. <laughs> and I say, people, they're not coming. What's on the go? We would see our churches as a place to get stirred up and prepared to go out, learn how to use the equipment, Imagine churches dotting our Atlantic Canadian region where the members, God's people, stirred by God's word, filled with the Holy Spirit's power, compelled because of Christ's love for them, were upset because they see people in their communities living and dying without Christ. <gasps> what would happen if our churches were filled with people who saw themselves as ambassadors? Members of this life-saving society who, after being in their huts of refuge, they're equipping churches each week, having been inspired by engaging worship, bold preaching of God's word that reminded them about what it cost them to be reconciled with God. They were then compelled by Christ's love to see themselves as Jesus in their homes, in their schools, in their offices, in their communities, in their checkout lines at Sobeys. And then the pastors and leaders equip the people to do the works. Coach them, as John said last night. Coach them. Do we believe the gospel? That's my question. And as I look out of my congregation week after week, I pray to God that every one of us will be so filled with gratitude for what God has done for us. This unbelievable, unfathomable, extraordinary, mind-blowing love he has for us we will then be compelled to show and tell his love to others. 
You know, Paul closes this passage. He says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. And I love what one author writes. They say, the righteousness of God is the gift of a right relationship with God based on the fact that he has ruled in our favor by refusing, because of the death of Christ in our place, to take account of our sins. He's ruled in our favor. Praise God. He wants to make his appeal through us. I don't understand it. I think, you know, seriously, the church, a crazy mismatched band of people whose common ground is found beneath the cross, the church is God's plan A. No plan B, folks. We're it. Do we believe that Jesus came on the ultimate rescue mission, that we were dead in our sins, that we were enemies of God, that we were once lost, that he came because he'd rather die for us than live without us? I love a story I read by a former pastor from the States. And you know, he was really worried, really worried about the way his congregation looked at those who were lost. That there was this sort of awesome them mentality, you know, close the doors to the ark, we're all good. And this really bothered him. And he told the story about how he was watching the news reports shortly after the attack on the Twin Towers in New York City. And as he was watching these reports, it wasn't long before cameras zoomed in on people clamoring for airtime. They were holding pictures of their family members who were working in the Twin Towers that day. Missing John, missing Anne, missing Patricia, missing Jane. And as he watched the gravity of the situation unfold as the towers came down, he thought to himself, these people aren't missing, man, they're lost. They're lost. Lost is final. Lost means defeat. Lost means hope is gone. And then it hit him. The reason why he could call them lost was because he didn't know them. He said, you know, I could call them lost because they weren't real people to me. I could call them lost because it was easier emotionally. But those who love the people working at the World Trade Center called them missing for only one reason. They loved them. And then he points to the Luke 15 passages, you know, about the lost sheep and the lost coin. And that certainly they're referred to as lost, but who was the one who was compelled to search for them? It was the owners. And what was their motive? Something valuable went missing. And so the shepherd leaves the 99 to find the one. The woman sweeps up the floor, turns the house upside down, searching for the coin. And it wasn't click flooring back then that she was sweeping up. Something valuable went missing, and the onus was on the owner for the all-out search. These objects that were lost, they didn't know they were lost. What was the response of the owners? Panic, concern, love, action. They didn't get angry at the lost items. You silly coin. 
They didn't get angry at the lost items, saying that you're not where you're supposed to be. They were missing. Change our outlook, how we see people. The people Jesus is missing, and we will look out. Change our outlook, how we see ourselves, having ourselves received God's grace and mercy. We are now fully loved, fully accepted, fully forgiven because of God's love for us through Christ. And then we'll look out. Instead of people being projects, targets for evangelism, they become friends. This is the theme we've been hearing. Jesus calls us his friends. We're no longer his enemies. The people that Jesus is missing, are we missing them too? Will we count conversations and not just conversions? It really bothers me, you know, when we hold a, a time where we get together with people and everybody's saying, well, how many people were saved? And did you make sure you had the devotional? Why am I investing in this program if you're not saving people? Will we count conversations, not conversions? Instead of trying to get something from people, why not give them something? Our time, our attention, free attention giveaways, evangelizing with our ears. Did you know that listening doesn't mean you agree? We're hearing this. This is the theme. We're afraid. If I listen to you, then someone's going to see me, and they're going to think that I'm in with them. Listening doesn't have to mean we agree. Listening means we're actually interested in someone else's story. And we put weights on our eyebrows. Eyebrow control. <laughs> I am now unshockable. <laughs> I sometimes think that we just should hand out eyebrow weights to everybody <laughs> and say, go to the Starbucks and chat with some people. Because what they're into and what's happening in their lives is shocking. But even more so, the reason why we need to be compelled by Christ's love. Today's Ash Wednesday and it's also Valentine's Day and I think it's a perfect combo actually. As we consider the season of Lent, we're reminded that ashes are a picture of our mortality and our spiritual condition apart from Christ. And then Valentine's Day, the day we celebrate love. Over these weeks leading to Easter, we're reminded of the love that was shown for us through Christ. Only when we realize the cost of what Christ has done for us will we change our outlook. I'm convinced of this. Perhaps we can be moved to prayer for God to impress upon each of us the depth of his love during this Lenten season. And then we as individuals and as churches will be in a posture to love and serve others. Those whom Jesus is missing from his kingdom, we'll miss them too. A prayer that we would be cut to the heart that the Holy Spirit will reveal to us where we need to confess and repent. Do we even care that we would die to self and do whatever it takes? Will we, like Paul and the early church, be compelled by Christ's love to look out? There's this video. You can Google it. It's called Unlike Christ, and it shows someone typing into a Google search engine the words, 
why are Christians so... And then they type in the letters of the alphabet. Now this is an actual thing. It was an actual search, by the way. So they type in, why are Christians so... And they type the letter A. What comes up? Angry, annoying, arrogant. They type in the letter C. Cruel, close-minded, crazy. D, defensive, divided, and so on. You get the picture. Wouldn't it be awesome if the churches in Atlantic Canada would be churches where people are asking, why are those Christians so loving? Why are they so generous? Why are they so giving? Why are they so into solving injustice? Why are they so selfless, so real? Why are they speaking normal so that they can, you know, I can understand them? Why are they so brave? Why are they so welcoming? Why are they so peacemaking? Why are they so unified? <gasps> Why are they so, you fill in the blank. Christ's love compels us. We cannot disband our life-saving brigade, our churches. We have to go out. Jesus said, take up your cross and follow me. We're no longer living for ourselves but for Christ. May God help us to change our outlook. Let us look out. And I'm going to close with Paul's prayer request to the Christians in Ephesus. And may this prayer be ours. He says, pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. Amen.